Welcome back, guys, to another episode of the Health Mastery Show. It's episode 21 with Dr. Eric Trexer, and I'm happy and, and glad and, and uh, surprised that I've reached this many episodes and have been so consistent with it. And I want to thank everybody who's listened thus, thus far. Um, Eric is on for his second episode. And the first time we spoke, we talked all about metabolic damage and uh, metabolic adaptations to dieting. In this episode, we specifically talk about antioxidants, oxidative stress, inflammation, and how all of that affects training and hypertrophy. These are kind of terms that are thrown around a lot in general health and general nutrition. And a lot of people don't really know what they're talking about when they when they mention these terms. They think antioxidants are good, oxidative stress is bad, inflammation is bad, and that we just want a lot of antioxidants and we just want to minimize any kind of oxidative stress or inflammation. So in this episode, we talk all about that. And if you want to learn more about it, go to strongerbyscience.com forward slash antioxidants and if you do like the episode please leave a review but without further ado let's get into this episode with dr eric trexler eric thanks for coming back on the podcast again yeah thank you for having me and you are actually my first uh repeat guest so i think this is the 21st episode or so maybe 22nd but you're the first person i've had on twice so that's quite an honor so you didn't regret the first time no, it was actually great. I really, really enjoyed talking to you. Um, just the way that you think and uh, the information that you present and your bodybuilder as well, which I which I like to talk to bodybuilders. Got to count um, for something, right? Yeah. Um, so yeah, it was great. It's great to chat the first time. We talked all about metabolic uh, adaptations to dieting. I believe at that point you had released an article uh, on the Stronger by Science website. Um, I know that you've done some work that uh, yourself um, uh, around that topic um, in your in your research, correct? Correct, yeah. Yeah, so I don't really know what the etiquette is for bringing somebody on a second time where they have to reintroduce themselves, but for anybody who hasn't listened to that first episode, maybe you give us a 30-second uh, intro into who you are. Yes, I am a pro-natural bodybuilder. I have a PhD in human movement science. Most of my research is in sports nutrition. And I am uh, a co-owner of Stronger by Science. And uh, I I'm also one of the reviewers for Mass, which is our monthly research review. Awesome. Thanks, Eric. And today we're going to specifically talk about um, antioxidants, oxidative stress, um how antioxidants play a role in health with regards to in the context of say people are interested in physique enhancement and um, how they may impact performance recovery etc and this is a, re a really uh cool area i really enjoyed reading about this it's it's not often talked about in the realm of body composition per se it's definitely talked about a lot in just general health you know a lot of people just say got to eat my antioxidants or oxidative stress or free radicals almost just throwing them out there as if words that are, are bad or good but not necessarily knowing what they mean so first if we start off about talking about what is oxidative stress free radicals Are you able to explain a little bit about what that actually means yeah i mean like you said there's a lot of terms in this area that uh kind of get used synonymously or at the very least get used very vaguely you know people don't really want to commit to what these terms are, are really meaning so when we talk about oxidative stress and antioxidants and free radicals there, there's a few kind of basic key ideas to uh to, to clarify so oxidation is is just a basic chemical process that's characterized by the loss of an electron 
And we've got these various free radicals, um, which I, I recently wrote an article for Stronger by Science about this topic that people should check out for a lot of really detailed information. But with free radicals, we've got um, reactive oxygen species, reactive nitrogen species. I tend to just call them uh, reactive species as kind of an umbrella term. Uh, but the idea is that these reactive species can, uh, you know, go throughout the body and uh, induce oxidative reactions, okay? So uh, they can uh, engage in, the, in these oxidative processes uh, in which, you know, that electron is basically getting transferred or kind of stolen from, uh, from cells. The, the, the reason we care about it, you know, you use the term oxidative stress, um, Whenever there's a, a lot of oxidative reactions going on um, and we kind of lose the balance between oxidative uh, reactions and antioxidant actions, uh, what can happen is we can see damage to cells. So, so we can see that various components of cells, uh, their protein, lipid, and DNA structures, because of an excessive amount of oxidation going on, they can become damaged. And that's, that's generally what we're talking about when we talk about oxidative stress. Now, typically speaking, we've got some safeguards in place. Uh, you know, these oxidative reactions are critical to human physiology. They have important roles in the body. So, you know, if we didn't have reactive species and we didn't have these various oxidative processes going on, uh, you know, we wouldn't have normal cell signaling and immune responses and gene expression and ion transport. I mean, this stuff is important. So it's not fair to say that oxidative reactions or oxidative stress are necessarily bad. But what we need to do is keep it in a balance. And fortunately, that's where antioxidants come into play. Now, when we think of antioxidants, I think we typically think of stuff we eat that is usually a fruit or a vegetable. I think that's kind of uh, the way people operationalize antioxidants. But there, there are really uh, a few different, uh, you know, we, we've certainly got antioxidants from the diet, but we also have some endogenous antioxidant systems uh, that our body kind of takes care of automatically. Um, you know, we've got these various enzyme systems. And when it comes to combating rampant or, uh, you know, uh, excessive oxidative stress, We've got a few options. Uh, you know, an antioxidant can uh, reduce the uh, the production of reactive species, or it can just bolster our endogenous antioxidant systems. Or an antioxidant can actually scavenge uh, reactive species directly. So basically, go out straight to the reactive species itself and neutralize it so that the reactive species will not then go on to damage some cell or cell component out there. So the idea in general is that we've got this interplay. We've got these natural oxidative processes going on. We've got these reactive species being produced, and that's normal. But we need to keep them in check with this balance of reactive species production and also antioxidant activity. If we have, uh, if that scale gets tilted in the wrong direction and we have an excessive amount of oxidative stress that's not being kept in check by various antioxidants, uh, you know, then we see that that becomes implicated in a variety of, of chronic medical conditions. Um, and it's just generally not a good thing. So, you know, rampant oxidative stress uh, can, can uh, like I said, damage cells. And, and that's why when you, when you look at the literature pertaining to 
a variety of chronic diseases, uh, cancer, rheumatoid arthritis, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, a number of different chronic diseases, you're going to see that the idea of oxidative stress comes up quite a bit. So Eric, um, let me try and simplify this a little bit and correct me if I'm wrong, because this is the way that I kind of uh, contextualized it when I first started reading about this quite a while ago was that like a free radical would be like a, a molecule so uh, and that would be say it would have an unbalanced amount of electrons in its outer shell right so it would go through your body and this is probably uh, blown up or hyperbolate but it comes through your body and because it doesn't have that extra it's not doesn't have that um doesn't have a full shell of electrons essentially what it does is like it, it takes them from other parts of your body or other cells in that body and almost like in a in a tearing um fashion or whatever so it would pull it away from them and that that's what causes the damage that's what causes the oxidative stress and i know it's very simplified but would that be a good kind of very basic explanation of how it works yeah i mean you know free radicals like you said um they they uh they want to uh, obtain another electron to to achieve stability. In the process of doing that, they interact with other cells. Uh, and in many cases, what we'll see is that a chain reaction forms. So a free radical will be quite unstable. It will basically steal an electron to become stable. But the thing that it just stole an electron from now is unstable. So now it's going to go uh, and try to get its electron back. And so we can see kind of a chain reaction forming where, where these, uh, these uh, reactive species or free radicals kind of cause a series of events that, that cause, uh, you know, multiple instances of cellular damage. Gotcha. So obviously people will know it's common knowledge that you shouldn't smoke or, you know, trying to reduce stress, et cetera, to, to reduce any ill effects on your health and obviously this isn't a, a medical podcast but what people would be concerned about is perhaps things that they consume through their nutrition that may affect or may increase oxidative stress and i've actually read before um from a, a doctor a, a book i think it was called deeper or clear nutrition or something like deep deep nutrition i think and and she talked about in the book um that because certain fats were not stable, it meant that they actually caused oxidative stress because it because there was no because there was less saturated uh, or because of the the saturated bonds in it, there was less um, less stability within it, and so polyunsaturated fats that because it was they're so unstable, they would actually cause a lot of damage in the body. So you should not eat uh, polyunsaturated fats because they're causing all this this damage and they have all these free radicals. And obviously that's that's cherry picking taking a very specific fat and, and pulling that from the cold context of an overall diet. But are there certain foods or certain food groups that can increase oxidative stress? And what could actually, what, what could be the result of that if long-term chronic intake? You know, I've never really thought about it from that perspective of a food uh, inducing oxidative stress. I, I typically kind of view it uh, from the other perspective. So, I mean, like you said, it, when we're worried about exposing ourselves to oxidative stressors uh, that are not going to induce positive adaptations, we talk about, you know, limiting our exposure to radiation, cigarette smoking, air pollution, some industrial chemicals. I've not heard anything about specific foods, but it's also a place that I've not really looked. 
when I think of exposure to, uh, you know, to oxidative stress, those are the things I think about. I also think of a variety of uh, medical conditions that can increase oxidative stress. Um, and certainly from a dietary perspective, I think our main course of action is doing things that can promote antioxidant uh, processes. So an example of that is just exercising. So exercising itself acutely does induce an increase in oxidative stress. Uh, but what happens, a kind of a hallmark adaptation to chronic exercise is that our endogenous antioxidant systems become stronger uh, in response to that repeated exposure. So uh, one of the great things we can do uh, when it comes to managing our kind of long-term chronic oxidative stress exposures is become trained, you know, do exercise consistently. Another thing we can do is try to make sure that we have uh, a decent amount of antioxidants in our diet. So I'm not, uh, I'm, I'm not familiar like off the top of my head with any specific food that, that might be uh, pro-oxidative. They, they might be out there, but I try to focus more on doing the types of things, uh, you know, avoiding the very obvious oxidative stressors and making sure my exercise and diet habits are compatible with, you know, supporting uh, antioxidant function in the body. Yeah, the the way that I've kind of come to look at nutrition in terms of its effects on the body is that um, like smoking or like inhaling uh, some chemical things or, or sniffing glue or something like that, you can't actually have a, a control that doesn't ever have exposure to it. And, and even at that, like, let's say somebody never consumed any polyunsaturated fats. Like n we don't just consume polyunsaturated fats by themselves. We consume them as part of a, uh, a, a food that contains fat, but probably other types of fat, but also the context of an overall diet. So it'd be, it, that's often perhaps where that information or that, that hypothesis is extrapolated that, you know, if we just give lab rats loads of polyunsaturated fats and nothing else, you know, maybe then in that case, it will have some oxidative effects, but that's not real life. You know, I think that's yeah. the, the way that, I, so, so yeah, regards and, and to, if I could make one little comment on that topic, um, something to keep in mind, we're talking about oxidative stress. We're talking about really nitty gritty, detailed micro level observations. You know, I mean, this is really mechanism heavy stuff that's biochemical in nature. So what I usually caution people against doing is getting too wrapped up in the minutia uh, and, and the very, very small detail. So for example, something like polyunsaturated fats, you could kind of plot out a biochemical rationale for avoidance, right? But then the question is, do we see that people with zero intake of polyunsaturated fats are tangibly and meaningfully more healthful uh, and have, you know, way better health outcomes than people who have moderate intakes of polyunsaturated fats? Uh, and to my knowledge, the answer is no. Um, and so that's something to keep, you know, another example is something like fructose, right? So uh, fructose, people treat it like it's absolute poison. Um, there are some very fascinating uh, differences in fructose metabolism compared to glucose metabolism. So again, you can draw out this biochemical rationale that would indicate less fructose is always better, no matter what. But then, you know, there was a study this past year. They took a, a number of healthy individuals who did not have overweight or obese BMI categorization. So they were of a normal BMI based on the, you know, the charts and the definitions. 
and they basically put him on an obscenely high fructose diet. I mean, it was, uh, I think it was 200, maybe 300 grams a day of fructose. It was, it was insane. But these individuals were relatively lean. Uh, you know, they, they were not excessively sedentary, and they were not eating uh, in a large caloric surplus. And so what they found was, over the course of this study, which was several weeks long, uh, there was no significant weight gain. And because of that, uh, they looked at all these different metabolic parameters that, based on a biochemical rationale, should have potentially gotten worse, and there was essentially no effect. And the idea was, of course, there are these differences in the metabolic pathways and, and some of the biochemical factors of fructose versus glucose, uh, fructose versus glucose versus other carbohydrate sources. But when we're talking about lean people who are reasonably active, who aren't gaining weight, all that stuff kind of goes out the window and these people are able to maintain, you know, all of their normal metabolic metrics or all their normal indices of metabolic health were, were completely intact. Yeah. And to consume that amount of fructose, you would need to be drinking like something like six liters of Coca-Cola a day or something like that. Whatever that it, is. It, it was a level of fructose that nobody could or would want to achieve on a regular yeah. basis. I can tell you that. Have you seen this series called Hunters on a, on prime um, uh, prime video i have not uh it's it's relatively new but it's about a it's about nazi hunters in the u.s like in the i think the 80s or 90s but at the very end well kind of giving the series away here but otherwise it wouldn't make sense when i'm talking about it but at the very end the nazis have released this um this this chemical compound into the the whole system of america to to bring down the western culture and it's high fructose corn syrup it's pretty funny <laughs> yeah <laughs> But um, yeah, so so with regards then to antioxidants, like we have the intrinsic antioxidants that our body produces itself, but then obviously we can get antioxidants like you talked from from foods. Like, is is our goal just to consume as much antioxidants as as possible? And what kind of categories do that fall into? Is, is it minerals? Is it vitamins? Is it phytonutrients? Um, is is antioxidants quite a broad term? Yeah, antioxidants is a remarkably broad term. Um, and so, like I mentioned, I, I wrote an article, strongerbyscience.com slash antioxidants. Um, the only reason I bring it up is to make sure people can get all the detail because I won't be able to kind of talk through every detail. But what I've got in that article is a big chart of like, what are the antioxidants that we might see in the diet? And, you know, it, it breaks antioxidants into two groups, natural or synthetic. And then with the natural ones, there's enzymatic and non-enzymatic. And the non-enzymatic natural antioxidants are wh where we find most of our dietary antioxidants. So it includes some vitamins and minerals for sure. Uh, it includes polyphenols. Uh, it Im includes carotenoids uh, and others as well. And then you can break down polyphenols into a number of subgroups. So we've got the, the flavonoids, the, the phenolic acids, a, a number of different subcomponents of that polyphenol grouping. And then even within like flavonoids, you, you've got a variety of subgroups, which would include things like anthocyanins, uh, isoflavones. So we can keep kind of breaking this down into smaller and smaller groupings, but uh, just to give an idea, I think they've already identified, I believe it's over 4,000 flavonoids. Uh, 
which is just one of the subgroups of polyphenols, which is just one of the subgroups of the non-enzymatic natural antioxidants. So yeah, um, to put it lightly, there are a lot of different antioxidants, uh, a lot of different types of antioxidants that you can find in the diet. Now, the other part of your question was, is more always better? Um, or, or should we just uh, aim to uh, achieve the highest intake possible? And that's a really tricky question. Um, you know, the, the question of how much is enough can be very difficult because, as you can imagine, with thousands of different compounds, uh, you know, there are, uh, if you were to try to give an optimal dosing range for each of these individual ones, I mean, it, it, would, it would get immensely complex. And so, what I usually try to do, my personal approach to antioxidants in the diet is eat a diet that is what I call, quote unquote, rich in antioxidants. And it's exceptionally vague, extremely vague term. But what I try to do is make sure my diet has several uh, different fruits and vegetables and beverages with high antioxidant content. I want to basically aim for a high intake that is not higher than would be possible in a typical diet. And so what I mean by that is I'm not fond of the idea of mega dosing with really high doses of antioxidants. Yeah. Does that make so, sense? Yeah, so so you wouldn't try to pick out a specific antioxidant like vitamin C or, or vitamin E and, and think because it's an antioxidant that you, you're aware of, you super mega dose that to have, you know, health healthy property, health promoting properties or something like that. Correct. Yeah. I, I'm and so the reason I say that when it comes to things like vitamin C and E uh, is, is because we actually do have some pretty good research literature that is more, I mean, you know, we're bodybuilders. We're really interested in things like performance, recovery, uh, muscle gain. We do have evidence, uh, several studies looking at what happens when we mega dose with vitamin C and vitamin E. And, uh, you know, as a, you know, healthy individual with no clinical conditions that would increase oxidative stress, you know, people with what we consider fairly normal levels of oxidative stress, for someone like, like me, uh, there doesn't seem to be massive benefit to doing, you know, mega dosing with vitamin C or E. Now, of course, if you're under medical care for some kind of clinical condition, and that's, you know, what, what a medical practitioner has recommended for you, of course, you got to sort that out with them. I'm just kind of talking for the young, healthy, active individual who is supplementing with huge doses of vitamin C, think it's going to, you know, have all these positive impacts on their training, their recovery, their performance. And we just don't really see that panning out in the literature. Um, now, yeah. you know the fitness world. I mean, there's always that pendulum that swings back and forth, right? So it's hard to take like a middle-of-the-road stance. It's either vitamin C is a huge game changer. It's going to make you recover way better and it's going to take your performance to the next level or it's going to ruin all your gains, right? And so I've seen people arguing both sides of that, but I think the, the real answer is actually right in the middle. Um, you know, the people who are saying, you know, if you take, like you got to be really cautious about your vitamin C intake because it's going to blunt all of your hypertrophy. The evidence doesn't really pan out very well for that hypothesis. Um, but at the same time, if you're saying, hey, you got to make sure you're taking this really high dose vitamin C because it's going to help you recover and you're going to train better and you're going to adapt better. There's really not good evidence for that either. It looks like this 
really high dose vitamin C and vitamin E strategy is uh, is really just not having an impact on these various fitness related outcomes. Yeah, and I definitely do want to come to the effects of antioxidants on performance and hypertrophy and recovery. But first, I guess we got to touch on a bit of the, the nebulous term that is inflammation. So would you mind explaining a, a bit about inflammation and, and, you know, is it good? Is it bad? Or is it is it a neutral term? Yeah, so inflammation, um, a lot of times people lump it in with oxidative stress. And admittedly, these two terms are related to each other, but they are distinct. Okay, so we've already kind of defined oxidative stress. It's this high amount of, of, of these, you know, reactive species doing their thing, um, unbalanced or unchecked or insufficiently balanced by antioxidant activity. When it comes to inflammation, we, we have cells in our body that that is their job. They are inflammatory cells. Um, so, you know, neutrophils, monocytes, lymphocytes, etc. And these inflammatory cells have a specific job and they have, uh, you know, specific things that, um, that call them to action. We have these, uh, these various stimuli that induce inflammation. When that happens, the inflammatory cells go to work, they do their thing, and ultimately they're there to pr protect us. You know, they, they want to make sure that if there are toxic substances or pathogens or tissue damage, inflammation is essentially our body's mechanism of dealing with that and protecting the organism overall, which is us. Uh, and so inflammation, again, it's a lot like oxidative stress. We need oxidative stress uh, for a variety of physiological functions. In the same way, if we just had no inflammatory processes whatsoever, that would not be a good thing for us. It would be absolutely catastrophic. So we need some inflammation, but again, much like oxidative stress, we do not want excessive inflammation. Now, the question of how the two relate to each other, um, sometimes in the inflammatory process, we will see that part of the inflammatory response is the production of reactive species. What we'll see in the other direction is that, in some cases, chronic oxidative stress can actually trigger low-grade inflammation. So it's a bi-directional relationship where one can induce the other and vice versa. Uh, but these are technically distinct terms. Uh, I, I, I shouldn't even say technically. They are distinct terms. They are simply related to each other. Yeah, so essentially, does that mean that for certain reactions or certain processes, short-term inflammation is actually warranted or actually good or needed but then perhaps long-term chronic inflammation is is related but not necessarily uh, you know one-on-one -on -one with uh you know with those same things that cause say increases in acute inflammation like for example training versus uh, a diet or a lifestyle that will cause chronic inflammation yeah, I think uh, that's correct. And really the whole point here is focusing on acute versus chronic. So you want your body to be able to initiate a robust response in terms of oxidative stress. Like if you did not have a response to training that included the production of reactive species, uh, you would not be able to perform well. Um, at the same time, if you had an excessive response, you would not be able to perform well. So we need these responses to happen acutely, and we need them to be an appropriate magnitude, much like inflammation, right? So we need some inflammatory processes when it comes to things like uh, injury recovery, for example. In some cases, the inflammatory process uh, needs to be managed very tightly. Um, 
So, you know, there are some injuries that, uh, you know, I'm thinking specifically, I might be a little bit out of my scope here, but I, I remember vaguely being taught about spinal cord injuries. And one of the challenges is, uh, you know, an inflammatory process is going to be part of any physical insult, you know, any kind of tissue damage injury like that. But if the inflammatory process to a, a spinal cord bruise is excessive, it can do further damage uh, w- with implications for long-term dysfunction. And so one of the things with acute care of those types of injuries, if my memory serves correctly, is very tightly managing that inflammatory process. So the, the idea is we need inflammation and oxidative stress for a variety of things in the body. But what we need to do is make sure, or, or I guess hope, that the response is going to be an appropriate magnitude. And what we really don't want is long-term, uh, like, you know, low-grade oxidative stress or low-grade inflammation chronically, long-term, uh, kind of a, a long-term imbalance where we see that our, our response is, uh, or, or that our just kind of baseline level is higher than it should be. Those are the types of things that seem to be more closely implicated with, with chronic disease risk. Sure. And I think you'll probably agree with me based off of what you're saying is that as long as you are trying to have a diet that is high in antioxidants, so just rich in fruits and vegetables for the most part, and, and a well-balanced diet, and you, you are exercising and you're trying to look after your health, not smoking, etc., that you don't really need to worry about these, or at least what you can control with regards to long-term chronic inflammation. Yeah, I mean, so if you were to ask me, you know, what are the things I can do to keep this, you know, chronic oxidative stress or, or chronic inflammation, what can I do to keep these things in check? You know, the, the answer usually is sleep well, don't get overly stressed, exercise enough, but not too much, maintain good uh, body composition, you know, an appropriate body fat percentage uh, for your health, Um have a diet that is rich in fruits and vegetables and other antioxidants like coffee or tea. Um, and so you start putting together these ideas of what can kind of effectively help you uh, build some kind of a defense against these chronic issues with excessive oxidative stress or excessive inflammation. But that list of things I just made, uh, first of all, is just a blueprint to living a healthy life. Like, they're, they're, like it just, you know, all those things... Let's say that you don't even, uh, let's say they didn't have any effect on oxidative stress or inflammation. Those various things would make you feel great. Whatever whatever they're doing, like forget about the biochemistry. Those just make up the blueprint for living a life that is is generally conducive to long-term health and is going to make you feel great every day. Yeah, gotcha. So then when it comes to, I suppose, what, we're, what most people are probably uh, interested in learning about is how do antioxidants have effects, both positive and negative, on training? So specifically, your recovery, your um, your strength, and then performance. I know you've you've done some work on uh, blood flow or some research around how, how antioxidants can affect blood flow. And, and and do we need to avoid antioxidants? I know sometimes, like we kind of touched on a little bit about vitamin C. People were saying we shouldn't take a a multivitamin post-workout because the antioxidants kind of blunt the hypertrophy signaling and what are your kind of thoughts around around that positively and negatively affecting um, our responses to those yeah so uh, i'm going to start with the answer and then kind of explain why but i can't think of a reason why you would avoid antioxidants you know i i would say there's plenty of reasons to to not megadose 
with antioxidants. So to not go out of your way to take in a what would theoretically be a virtually impossible dose, you know, based on a, a food-based diet. Uh, but but you know, I have seen people that overreact and they're like, ah, I'm trying to keep my antioxidants down because I'm lifting a lot these days, and it's like that that's not not an advisable uh, strategy. So the idea here. You know, there's been some cool research in animal models that, that kind of reinforce this idea that if we block the ability to create reactive species, muscle contractility is impaired. We, we need some kind of oxidative stress response to, to physical exercise. But if, that's, if that response is too large, it, it's associated with fatigue and then again, a, a decline in, in neuromuscular performance. So we know that there needs to be some balance here. Um, and, and your question was, you know, specifically about, uh, you know, antioxidant supplementation uh, on various things like blood flow and recovery and, and performance and adaptation. So uh, in the article I wrote on, on the website, um, you know, I, I kind of review the, those things piece by piece. So when it comes to blood flow, there is some good evidence that, that a variety of antioxidants can uh increase blood flow responses to training. Uh, and that's generally a pretty neutral to positive thing. Um, there, there's certainly nothing bad about that. And you could make some theoretical arguments that enhancing exercise blood flow could be a positive thing for, for performance. And uh, this is nothing new. I mean, for, for a long time, we've understood that, uh, that antioxidants block the conversion of nitric oxide to peroxynitrite. Uh, and what this does is it enhances the bioactivity of nitric oxide, and nitric oxide is a potent promoter of blood flow, especially during exercise. Uh, so, so there's a very clear mechanism at play here, and there are several studies looking at a variety of different antioxidants that show small but, you know, uh, measurable improvements in exercise blood flow. Now, the question is, does that necessarily translate to enhanced, you know, short-term performance? And overall, the research looking at a variety of different antioxidants, it's not particularly impressive. Um, so you look at things like vitamin C, not, not that great in terms of short-term performance, not a negative impact by, by any means, but just not really doing much. Uh, there's some evidence that vitamin C might enhance performance at altitude specifically, but you know, if you're not in, in the process of training at altitude, it doesn't really seem to be that helpful. Um, like I said, there's a variety of different antioxidants that are completely different structurally. And so you have to review that research piece by piece, which is uh, remarkably frustrating. <laughs> I mean, because the findings of one antioxidant cannot necessarily be translated to any other antioxidant because of these uh, major structural differences. Um, but I will say this, th there's some evidence that uh, that there are some polyphenol-rich antioxidant supplements, a variety of different, uh, you know, fruit or vegetable extracts that they might have some modest positive effects on performance. It's really nothing to get that excited about. Um, you know, I, I'm still a little bit skeptical. And what you'll find is many of these, you know, quote-unquote antioxidant supplements are a lot more than antioxidants. So, for example, uh, I was reading a, a, a review, like a published uh, review paper about this topic, and they mentioned one of the good ones is beetroot juice. Um, but beetroot juice, of course, yeah, it has antioxidants, but it also has betaine in it. It also has nitrate in it. I mean, there are uh, notable ergogenic uh, ingredients in beets and in beet juice that, that are much more than just an antioxidant. So, what, if you're if you're thinking I'm going to 
get in the antioxidant game to acutely enhance my performance. I, I just haven't seen very impressive data in that regard. I mean, there's some stuff that's slightly positive, but nothing that that is like really overwhelming. And if anything, I'd say the best application of, of an antioxidant supplement for short-term or acute performance would be pairing an antioxidant with a nitric oxide source. I think that the two of them work pretty synergistically, and I think that the, the, the best thing that you could do to try to really get some kind of benefit from an antioxidant-based supplement is, you know, basically take, taking advantage of the fact that, that those antioxidants can enhance the bioactivity of nitric oxide. So I, I think, uh, you know, I think a, an interesting area for future research is going to be taking some, some kind of nitrate or citrulline source with a, a pretty decent antioxidant and seeing how, how big of an effect that antioxidant has. Now, like I said, blood flow, it's fine. Uh, again, it would be more notable if paired with nitric oxide. Same thing for acute performance. Recovery and, and muscle damage is a particularly interesting application. Uh, because intuitively, you'd think, okay, well, if we can do some kind of, if we can make a dent in this, uh, in the ensuing processes involving both oxidative stress and inflammation after training, maybe theoretically we can make our recovery a little quicker, get back into the gym more quickly, and everything will be good. There are some studies looking at vitamin C and E for uh, muscle damage and recovery. There are some showing some positive effects, but overall, the effects are pretty inconsistent. One area of research that actually has been pretty, uh, pretty promising is again some of those, uh, some of those like fruit extracts. So these, uh, these uh, extracts that are very rich in polyphenols and other, uh, other phytochemicals, they seem to actually be pretty good when it comes to short-term muscle damage and recovery. So one that comes to mind is tart cherry juice. Uh, there's, there's actually a pretty decent amount of literature. Um, it's not a huge body of literature, but there are several studies showing that consistent supplementation with a tart cherry juice or a tart cherry concentrate uh, can affect a variety of outcomes related to soreness, inflammation, and muscle damage following acute exercise. So um, I, I think that the, the literature pertaining to some of these fruit and vegetable-based um, extracts, so things like tart cherry juice, things like pomegranate juice or pomegranate extract. Uh, I believe I've seen some positive stuff with watermelon juice as well. Um, the, these antioxidant-rich supplements with a lot of different phytochemicals that are kind of naturally occurring in the food matrix or the beverage matrix, they seem to be uh, reasonably positive in terms of that short-term uh, ability to recover. My only issue with that literature is um, I think the practical application, you know, if you are throwing a training stimulus at your body that is so excessive that you need to very carefully manage these post-exercise uh, oxidative processes and inflammatory processes, I would argue that probably the most intuitive thing you can do to enhance your, your training adaptations is you got to rethink your, your training load. You know, you got to make sure that you're actually giving your body something it can adapt to rather than just beating yourself up in, in the gym. Now, of yeah. course, there, there are some instances where, you know, you're an athlete and it's, you know, some kind of marathon event 
and it's out of your hands. You have to be able to perform, you know, multiple days in a row or multiple bouts in a day. And it's like, yeah, this isn't a training. This isn't like a, a training thing. This is a competing thing. And, and if I'm going to recover, I have to deal with whatever they're putting me through. So I, I understand that. Um, but but that that's kind of the the rundown on the short term recovery. But in my opinion, the place where this uh, body of literature gets really fascinating is not short-term recovery, but long-term adaptation. And uh, to be totally honest, that's kind of the reason I wrote the article for Stronger by Science is that overarching question of if I have a high intake of antioxidants, is that going to blunt my training responses? And, uh, And there's some really fascinating research in that area. Yeah, so I just, on that topic, when I'm thinking about it, um, some points obviously you mentioned if you if you feel like you need to f- focus on the very nitty-gritty of specific types of juices to to recover your training then perhaps you know maybe maybe that help but you, we got to look at the question of well is this stimulus even required to uh, maximize hypertrophy if that's the goal you know it's not just about killing yourself in the gym and that's obviously a, a separate question but but like we said you, you rarely need to train close to failure or you rarely need to train to failure and the volume shouldn't be leaving you absolutely dead in the gym so for people listening specifically to this then it's probably not it's probably not even something that they're going to have to address or or if they do have to address that maybe it's looking at you know what's going in in terms of your training rather than trying to you know pick up the pieces afterwards but then you also talked a little bit about um, some of these effects like pomegranate juice or, or watermelon extract uh, helping with the recovery process. But then I think you're probably going to talk about it, but how does that, yes, it may help us recover faster, but is that something that we always want in the case that perhaps faster recovery, such as we've seen in things like you know using uh, cold water immersion or or other things like that that perhaps will help us recover faster, but then perhaps may blunt the hypertrophy response and actually you know work against what we're actually trying to achieve here. Yeah, yeah. So it, it's a very intuitive extension, right? So you think, okay, well, if we're managing this oxidative stress acutely, you know, we already talked about how oxidative stress has important roles in cell signaling. And so is it necessarily a good thing? to be managing that acutely when it comes to trying to induce some actual long-term training adaptations. Um, you know, one of the reasons that we, uh, that we have an improvement in our endogenous antioxidant system activity in response to training is because we are exposing our body to these big excursions, these big increases acutely in oxidative stress. So, um, you know, this literature started looking at aerobic exercise or, or endurance exercise, exercise specifically, and there were a few early studies that were indicating that if, if we do these kind of high-dose antioxidant interventions, it appears to uh, blunt some of the cellular signaling associated with mitochondrial biogenesis. And that's kind of a, a, a very key adaptation to endurance training, is, is that mitochondrial biogenesis. Um, and so the signaling pathways, there were these initial studies showing that the signaling is being impaired. Um, but what's really interesting is when you go several levels down down the line and say, well, the signaling is impaired, but did it actually impair mitochondrial biogenesis itself, not the activity of the signaling pathways? That evidence is a little bit mixed. And then when you take it another step and you say, well, whatever, I mean, we're not really that worried about mitochondrial biogenesis per se. We're trying to perform better. 
you know, does, does this stuff actually impact our ability to improve VO2 max or improve endurance performance specifically? And it doesn't really look like it. Um, it you know, it, it doesn't look like those, those little differences in those signaling pathways really translate to a notable blunting of the training adaptation that we most care about, which is the actual aerobic performance. Now, after this body of literature got rolling <clears throat> in the aerobic exercise space, people started looking at hypertrophy, um, thinking, well, uh, you know, we know that peroxynitrite specifically uh, is associated with uh, stimulating muscle protein synthesis. And like I said, antioxidants can really reduce that conversion of nitric oxide to peroxynitrite. And so the idea is, you know, if we're able to blunt some of these cellular events that are induced by uh, you know, the, the, the metabolic consequences of training and this oxidative stress response, if we're able to blunt all that and we're able to reduce any potential conversion to peroxynitrite and all these different, you know, like I said, these nitty gritty biochemical processes, is it possible that by, by blunting or, or, you know, uh, significantly reducing this oxidative stress response, might we actually be blunting hypertrophy? And what's really interesting is that the the literature looking at strength and hypertrophy kind of followed a very similar trajectory to the aerobic exercise uh, trajectory. So what, what they found was initially looking at some studies with uh, signaling pathways related to muscle hypertrophy. And what they did find was, you know, this really high-dose antioxidant supplementation did appear to inhibit some of these anabolic signaling pathways. So much like the, uh, the, the literature with my, mitochondrial biogenesis, that, that raises some concern that we might actually blunt hypertrophy as an extension of that. Um, but they, they uh, I think it was Clifford and colleagues, recently published a meta-analysis looking at a variety of different studies, um, seeing with, with high-dose vitamin C and E supplementation, how does this actually affect training adaptations uh, to aerobic or, or endurance exercise, but also to resistance exercise. So looking at strength and hypertrophy outcomes. And what you, what you notice is that some of these studies answer the question within this meta-analysis a little bit more directly than others. And so in, in my article, I look at the ones that most closely relate to what we're interested in. So, you know, studies that, that are specifically looking at very, um, very precise measurements of muscle growth. And, you know, like I said, the, the article kind of details all the specifics about what each study did, what each study found. But in aggregate, what we find is that for, for, uh, for, for lifting outcomes, hypertrophy and strength, these vitamin C and vitamin E interventions uh, didn't seem to help but they also didn't really seem to hurt much either. It was a fairly benign intervention in terms of the, the, uh, the effect on strength and hypertrophy. There were a few studies that might have, like, for instance, measured three different, they might have measured hypertrophy three different ways. One maybe was kind of slightly impaired and the other two weren't. You know, so th it's not that there's no evidence to support the idea, but I think a lot of people were under the impression that if you take high-dose vitamin C, your hypertrophy is completely blunted. You are not going to grow in response to training. And the actual literature that directly looks at these measures of hypertrophy, it really doesn't seem to support that. And what's really interesting is if you, 
I don't want to over-interpret these patterns because it's not a huge body of literature, but there are some studies in, uh, in younger, healthier people that indicate that there might be a slight detrimental effect, very slight, when it comes to hypertrophy outcomes uh, or strength outcomes. When you look in older populations, it almost looks like there might be a slight benefit. And intuitively, you might, uh, you might think, well, an older person, likely, you know, kind of one of the hallmark things we see with aging is more of that low-level chronic oxidative stress. So maybe if you're an older individual or someone who does, for, for whatever reason, have some of that baseline high-level uh, or, or chronic low-level oxidative stress, I should say, maybe there is a slight benefit of trying to get that handled uh, and, and that kind of promoting uh, your gains over time. But Honestly, looking for any of those patterns of it being beneficial for older folks or particularly detrimental for younger folks, the evidence just isn't super strong. Uh, but one thing that, like my takeaway from kind of reviewing this literature and getting really into the details with these studies is um, I think the potential for downsides is a little bit overstated when it comes to young, healthy individuals supplementing with vitamin C and E. Um, but my question is, why bother? You know, what are you hoping to get from this? Because it's not making your adaptations any better. And there is some possibility that it could blunt your, your adaptations to some degree. So when people come up to me and they say, you know, I'm thinking about taking this high dose vitamin C or E to facilitate my recovery in the gym, I say, well, it's not going to, it's not going to help us perform better. It's not going to help us recover better. Um, like I said, the, the recovery literature is not that great for vitamin C and E. Uh, it's not going to help us adapt better, and there is some possibility that it can modestly uh, reduce our gains. So it just doesn't seem like a good supplementation strategy to me. Yeah, that, that, that makes a lot of sense. So I, I know that you're a coach as well. So what are the practical applications that you give to the people that you work with in terms of how to apply this to, to their lives um, in terms of just getting enough antioxidants and perhaps not not trying to do specific things. Yeah, I, I think the practical applications, um, you know, like I said, that meta-analysis was specifically looking at vitamin C and E. What I find really fascinating is there's far less literature, but the, the studies looking at supplementation with polyphenols or other phytochemical antioxidants, uh, we don't really see any evidence of that blunting of hypertrophy. Like I said, the evidence isn't that strong for vitamin C anyway. But the difference there is that with the polyphenols, we do see some potential for some modest, you know, blood flow improvements and acute performance improvements and, uh, you know, slightly less muscle damage and slightly better recovery. So I, I don't write off every possible antioxidant and say there's no reason to supplement with that. I do think that some of these polyphenol, these polyphenol-rich or phytochemical-rich antioxidant uh, juices and extracts might have some select applications. Um, but generally speaking, th those are dosed in the studies in at levels that we could realistically hope to get from a food-based diet without doing any kind of mega dosing or powder supplementation. So in terms of the practical applications, I say, you know, high dose vitamin C and E, uh, for, for the typical healthy person, I just don't really see much of a justification for it. And I think if there's 
really minimal uh, potential for benefit and some small potential for a little bit of impairment of our gains, I say, let's, let's just not do it. When it comes to other, uh, you know, getting more polyphenols in the diet or getting uh, some of these other phytonutrient antioxidants, I say, let's, let's do our best to try to make sure that we've got a nice, uh, you know, diverse intake of plant foods. Let's make sure we've got plenty of uh, of vegetables and fruits and sometimes juices from those vegetables and fruits, but, uh, uh, and other beverages like, you know, like I said, coffees and teas. I mean, there are a lot of ways to work antioxidants in the diet. Uh, and there's some potential that these are going to help us out a little bit when it comes to, you know, like I said, very modest effects on blood flow, uh, on, on recovery from exercise, very small effects. But I think from my perspective, I always think, what's the risk for benefit, or what's the potential for benefit, and then what are the potential downsides? The potential benefit of eating an antioxidant-rich diet that is full of actual foods and beverages, um, rather than like, you know, mega-dosed supplements, the benefit is we've got a diverse intake of foods with, you know, hundreds of bioactive compounds, many of which are positive, that just generally tend to be associated with good health outcome outcomes, good recovery outcomes, good performance outcomes. We, if we seek out some of these phytonutrient antioxidants, what we find is that we have accidentally created a very well-rounded diet that is very compatible with good long-term health. So from my perspective, I view it kind of like the way I view dietary nitrate, which is I'm not really that... I, I don't think the the supplement the uh, nitrate supplements on the market are particularly great yet in, in terms of their uh, quality control and standardization. But if I encourage someone to seek out more more um, fruits and vegetables with dietary nitrate, again, the only downsides are we've got a diet that is packed with fiber, packed with vitamins and minerals, uh, you know, packed with all of these various bioactive compounds that are associated with good health. Uh, there's there's just no downside. So in terms of the practical applications, my general approach to antioxidants is try to eat a diet that is quite high in antioxidants, but but not one that in, involves mega dosing uh, any particular antioxidant. So what you're saying is we should, we should all follow a vegan diet. We'll leave it there, Eric. <laughs> what I'm saying is um, your, your parents were right. Eat your fruits and vegetables. Yeah, that's what I'm then, saying. <laughs> that that's a great way to wrap it up, Eric. Uh, thanks a lot for coming on. Where can people find more about your your work and what you do? You can find me at strongerbyscience.com. You can find me on Instagram. My handle is at Trexler Fitness, and you can find me every month. The first day of the month, we put out our research review called Mass. That stands for Monthly Applications in Strength Sport. We cover, uh, you know, I think. Eight to, there's 10 pieces of content every month. We cover all the, the most interesting research from the past month. And if you go through the last few months, you're going to see me writing about things like tart cherry juice and a variety of other antioxidants as well. Awesome, Eric. Thanks so much for coming on. All right, guys. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Myself and Eric, hopefully you learned something from this podcast. And if you do want to find out more and read a bit more in depth into these things, please do go over to strongerbyscience.com forward slash antioxidants where eric has written up a great article article on this and if you do have any questions for me or for eric you can always find our contact details or social media profiles in the show notes 
But until next time, thanks for listening.